0: Welcome to Voices of Australia, a podcast where we explore different perspectives on how to build a cohesive society. In this episode, we turn our attention towards the not so silent giant that is climate change. However, our focus shifts away from statistics and environmental impacts. Instead, we delve into the often overlooked human side of this vast issue, local and cultural community adaptation, educational campaigns, resilience, and more. Climate change is not just a scientific concern, it's a social one. Our very ways of life, our cultures, our communities are under threat from its unrelenting progress. Indeed, according to the most recent mapping social cohesion results, climate change stands as the second largest concern for Australians. Yet in this crisis, there is also an opportunity, an opportunity for meaningful change, an opportunity for informed and engaged communities to build a sustainable future for us all. Our first guest today, Kennedy Mbeva, is a postdoctoral research associate in the Global Economic Governance Program. With a keen focus on the institutional changes needed to meet the objectives of the international climate change regime, Kennedy brings valuable expertise to our discussion. His research delves into the challenges and opportunities developing and emerging countries face. In contributing to long-term international climate cooperation as a kenyan national with a background in international relations and experiences across australia china and germany kennedy offers us a global perspective on local action and he joins us from oxford in the uk today our second guest hamza farah brings a unique blend of scientific knowledge and community engagement a sustainability advisor at rmit Hamza is passionate about embedding the sustainable development goals in programs, projects and policy. He's worked on industry-transforming innovations from composite rail sleepers to portable solar technology. But beyond that, Hamza is a dedicated community organiser, striving to help communities reach their full potential. His approach to sustainability is holistic, combining technological solutions with an understanding of the social realities of climate change. He joins us here in Melbourne. Welcome to you both. First to you, Kennedy. Uh, could you provide an overview perhaps of what institutional changes are required for climate change to resonate with everyday people across the world?
1: Uh, thank you very much uh, for the invitation and it's my pleasure to participate in this discussion. So, um, as you mentioned, mentioned Antia, uh, climate change is one of those defining challenges, which is not just ecological but it affects uh, society at at all levels, uh, be it in the local communities or the global society. Um, And In terms of institutions uh, that we need to address the issue, I think a fundamental uh, point should be that all those institutions, be they at the local level, at the national level or international level, should put the welfare of the people at the front and centre and especially people who are most uh, vulnerable or impacted by climate
0: change. Oh, thank you, Kennedy. That was the, <laughs> that was terrific. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, what do you see as the most significant challenges also when trying to implement sustainability on the ground and in communities?
2: I see that the key challenge is to be kind of like a limited understanding and a lack of awareness. Um, and so, one of the key things that we mentioned before, the Sustainable Development Goals. These are 17 goals designed, developed in the UN um, – target goals to achieve sustainability by 2030 and I think the key thing is as global and as big as these goals are who can really break down and understand what each of those 17 goals are like is it something that everyone knows is it an everyday knowledge that for example and you yourself can recite back to me what those 17 goals are um, because me as well as a sustainability expert I'd have to continually look back at those <laughs> kind of at the diagram to see what each one of those 17 goals are which one does this kind of correlate to? Yeah. So I think it's um, having awareness in that and then also understanding its relevance to daily life because it just seems so global and like non-applicable to everyday life. I don't know how it kind of translates to me heading to work, but in some way it does. Um, I think the other key thing would be some of the challenges would look at um, limited resources, uh, capacity, financial resources, kind of like being uh, involvement in local plans, Um, and I think just it's integration across all things. So an understanding of it and having its integration across all plans, uh, for people to make sense of, and actually break it down to bite, bite bite-sized chunks. That's like, this is what this goal intends to do sustainable transport. What does it mean for us? Let's put in some more bike paths. Let's encourage less use of cars and more public transportation. Let's make it more affordable. Um, and uh, you know, and that'll help get communities involved.
0: Yeah, I I think that's a really good point because it does look towards what are the individual actions that people can do. But Kennedy, just going back to you for a moment, uh, just thinking about um, individuals are inspired or they are um, supported to make change uh, individually based on the institutions that they trust around them and the type of information or advice that they get from from others, from that broader perspective. Is that something that you see playing out across uh, different countries?
1: Absolutely. And I think uh, in terms of the, um, of course, uh, at the end of the day, um, communities, uh, however we define them in various countries, uh, have different kinds of, uh, of needs. So one of the key things is context. Like you'll find uh, in some societies there's an emphasis on um what individuals can do to contribute to addressing these problems, and there's a, that kind of focus. But in others, you'll find there's a more kind of collective sense in terms of thinking about how they approach uh, the problems. And I think those two kinds of um, ideas in one way or the others, of course, they do overlap, but you can see how uh, different societies organize themselves, respond to these problems, to some degree reflect that. Of course, a key uh, question then becomes how do... Uh, people get to uh, contribute to or rather influence these institutions so that they work for them. I think that has been a cross-cutting challenge, uh, especially for these uh, global goals where we have them that are globally defined, of course, trying to get everyone on board, but then translating them, as Hamza said, into this kind of very actionable uh, projects and initiatives on the ground is one of the big challenges. But I think really strengthening the connection between the communities and the institutions so that the community, the institutions serve and reflect the needs of the communities is really key, and it cuts across uh, various communities. Uh,
0: Kennedy, I'm, I'm really interested in this area about where it intersects with um, cultural practices and identities, because there is a degree of um, differentiation or potentially inequality, if you like, between some communities which have been living quite sustainable lives forever, and yet, others that have been really pushing the boundaries about how far we can go in um, taking advantage of our climate. I'm just wondering how do we um, how do we think about that intersection between um, the positives and the negatives of um, cultural practices.
1: I think it's a very interesting question, and because my focus is on international politics, at least what I research, <laughs> that question is at the heart of international politics in addressing sustainability issues, be it climate change or broad environmental issues. And so the debate, uh, the two sort of kinds of views, one is reducing consumption, but of that of course assumes, you know, the certain level of development and that kind of development is having a negative impact on the environment. So for countries uh, that face that kind of problem. So the solutions would, that would make sense would be ones that try to reduce the negative impacts of that kind of development. But for other kinds of societies, the starting point is very, very different, where the key problems are what people call underdevelopment, you know, problems of poverty eradication, uh, struggling to get the bare necessities, or even trying to build a kind of um, economy or society that where people can have their basic needs met which calls for a different kind of solution. But what unites them all is we have these challenges that are global, but also uh, the contexts are very, very different. And so they call for different responses. And I think the key challenge is accommodating those kinds of different views, uh, which are shaped by you know those circumstances, but also culture, how societies organize themselves and deal with problems. I think getting that balance between collectively is a, you know, humankind addressing this shared challenge, but also acknowledging the very different contexts or ways of going about it. I think it's really one of the big challenges that we haven't yet figured out how to go
0: about. Kennedy, can you give us some examples? Can you give us uh, a couple of comparators of different countries that you're familiar with and how their responses have both, uh, are working within that political dynamic?
1: Yes, I'll give one example, uh, which is very, very controversial, (laughs) Uh, very oddly debated topic in international climate politics, and that's on fossil fuels. So there are two views. One is we should all stop burning fossil fuels as soon as possible, and because they are the direct source of emissions. Uh, But there are those who argue that that should be differentiated in that, that. Uh, those countries that have the ability or those who have uh, been using them for long should be the first ones to do so and countries that haven't developed much uh, should be given the um sort of the space to for example use uh fossil fuel kinds of energy or to build their industries etc of course it's never that simple in terms of this or that uh, but you can see the very very consequential debates Uh, at the moment uh these you know, the discussion of whether the World Bank and other institutions should fund fossil fuel projects in developing countries. It's a very polarising debate for mm-hmm. those who emphasise in and of themselves fossil fields are bad, but those who argue that the context should uh, reflect uh, the needs of, of of the countries and static points could be different. So there you can see very different kinds of visions playing out and, you know, which call for different kinds of governance responses, and so adjudicating between such kinds of issues really uh, difficult. But that's the stuff of politics, but it's it's very difficult, and it has consequences on on people.
0: Absolutely, um, and and you've really pointed to that degree of complexity that exists as soon as you add the overlay of politics into these sorts of conversations. Hamza, I wondered um, if you might be able to tell us a little bit more, though, about how sustainability innovations have contributed to community resilience around climate change. Um, I know you've got some familiarities, we said at the beginning, around some of these innovations. Um, Can you talk perhaps about this, the community-level engagement around some of these uh, sustainability improvements?
2: So when you look at the community level, I think the key thing to look at is... um what my, my key focus had been, for example, in sustainable infrastructure, and that is pretty much daily use by community, getting to work, getting to places, and a key way in which we operate or in which we put sustainability innovations and ideas through that is like taking a look at adaptations, climate change adaptations. Um, if you look at an, an, an innovation, it could possibly be through the use of, for example, um, new solar technology to power sites. Um if you take a look at um how that relates directly to community, I think you can say it's a it's a touch point out of scope because it's more in the process of building sustainable infrastructure.
0: We've seen examples mm. of that, haven't we, with um small solar panels being put on top of lights uh on on, on freeways and um and even the the opportunity mm. to actually improve things like bus shelters. Um, By Mm -hmm. using solar technology to to add some sort of cooling mechanism within those spaces.
2: Yeah. So in in those kind of examples, there there are plenty that we can find there. For example, we put panels on um, secure bike sheds to have it powered remotely and to have it powered by uh, by solar and battery. Um, We'd have examples of solar powered shed user paths. Um, in which during the day the lights are off and the solar panels powering up the battery, and as soon as a sensor triggers at it, it's night, or at a timer when scheduled, we have we provide uh, safety uh, and, and pretty much provide some vision and some lighting set at night. Um, other examples, perhaps for me, looking, I think one key thing was looking at like um, the climate change resilience and in infrastructure. I think that was a key part of it, mm-hmm. um, and and in that one, it's like how can you provide infrastructure that can survive the the, the risks or the the, the the but yeah pretty much the extreme risks that climate can pose uh to infrastructure extreme heat we've seen examples of road melting um you know asphalt actually melting and i think there's like a year two years ago victoria police put out a tweet that a stretch of road was melting in Broadmeadows, and that they had needed to be closed. And the example is what can we do to identify, select and utilise innovative materials that can kind of be more resilient to that and provide people safety in their transport in mitigating and adapting to those climate risks.
0: So, Hamza, a lot of those infrastructure elements are really things that government needs to fund. And and I think there are quite a lot of examples of government that are actually trying to uh, to progress that particular space. Um, but what about small businesses? What about, uh, you know, the, the 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 connectivity, if you like, between government and infrastructure and the individual um, sort of around that small business space? Are mm. you seeing innovations there as well?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. It's all in the power of the individual. It's all all the innovations stem from there. Um, the examples you can take a look at are like, well, first, initially, all these products that are being utilised in trials come from individuals. Government really doesn't play a role in that. Government perhaps has a barrier to entry through specifications and standards to say that you must utilize X product, you must utilize Y product. Um, And therefore, when someone develops one, they have to go through an extensive, expensive process of testing, trialing, and then working with authority or government to try and change a standard just so you can trial it and use it on a project. An example I can give um, for one is um, on an infrastructure project, we came across this um, this one individual who had modified a wood chipper um, so that it would be able to kind of cut up uh, plastic piping, PVC pipes used in projects. Um, these little chip particles can then be reutilized in developing new piping technology uh, and in new pipes. And it's like this is just one person that was working um, in an open in an open area who all of a sudden is contributing to one of the biggest you know infrastructure builds in the region.
0: Yeah, a, w- a wonderful example, and it, it actually comes down to um, a question, Kennedy. I wanted to ask you about, g- given you're coming to us from Oxford, um, sort of the home of one of the big homes of education. I really wanted to get a better understanding from you about what what is the importance of education in regard to climate change, and I suspect that education needs to think through where are we at with from a primary school, a secondary school level, and then the broader adult population. Because um, I imagine that there is, um, certainly we've seen school children marching uh, about climate change. Climate change is also really an, a very important issue for younger people. You're under 35s or so. But the older population also needs to be brought along. So I'm just wondering, Kennedy, if you have any thoughts about um, how how we go about thinking about education at all of those different levels.
1: Um, I think education is key and Maybe I can share my example, my, my life experience in Please this. Do. Is a way uh So I came across of the climate change issue when I was an undergraduate and uh, with friends and classmates, uh, you know, we decided to find ways of learning more about and engaging with it. So while still students, uh, we used to uh, attend meetings uh, organized by the governments, but other practitioners, but we also decided to build a movement across the continent which was Africa Youth Initiative on Climate Change, uh, which was quite a grassroots movement, but also connected uh, young people across the African continent and overseas across um, sort of um, from the grassroots, uh, from academia and different parts uh, of you know society. And that was a formative learning experience for me in understanding how people looked at the problem from very different perspectives from the grassroots all the way to the international level uh, through climate change negotiations. Um, where I think was quite young when I also got the opportunity to represent my country in the climate change negotiations, including the Paris negotiations in 2015. So that, for me, uh, showed me how the issue can be viewed from very different points. And fast forward to now where I also teach at the Blavatnik School of Government here at Oxford University, and we have students from more than 50 countries in every cohort who do the Masters in Public Policy, and they come from different kinds of governments, uh, public sector, private sector, and they're all destined for positions of leadership. So, one of the courses that I'm involved in teaching is a policy challenge uh, where we look at the climate change issue from different perspectives, and one can appreciate the complexity. Even as we train the next generation of leaders, how the issue of complexity is so so important, but also empathy, understanding that you know this problem can look very different from different vantage points, and so. There are many other ways that one could think about education of the issue but i think the issue of uh, the point of appreciating its complexity but also understanding that different people are trying to tackle the problem in different ways is absolutely key and i think uh the there's much more that can be done uh to emphasize then you know number one that this is a very big problem but number two just stimulate ways of thinking uh of how we can address and. Some of the very practical examples that Hamza gave, you know, show how different people can contribute to the problem. So education is key and it should be conducted in various ways at all levels.
0: What about the ones that are not actually participating in education? What about the older generations, Kennedy? How do we get to them?
1: Um, I think first and foremost is finding a role for them because most people demonise the older generation for being the sort of source of the problem or having a kind of lifestyle that has contributed to the problems that we have which doesn't you know advance the narrative as such but uh there were people who are trying to find creative ways of engaging us such parts of the population for example um you know people are people can think about how they invest their you know retirement uh, funds or pension funds. Uh, They don't need to be old as of yet, but that shows that if one invests their pension funds in um, institutions that uh, take this issue seriously, when they're older, in a way, they have contributed. But still, those who uh, are older and have more assets, have more capital uh, and have more resources can contribute in one way or the other addressing uh, this issue. But I think the most important thing is uh, showing this, uh, that part of the demographic, uh, demographic that there's a role that they can play, it's a proactive role and then sort of uh, opening up that space for them to contribute in, in the various, various ways they come.
0: So Kennedy, are you seeing certain, some governments that are really leading the wave um, in in their um, reconsideration of their policies in order to bring the population along uh, in, re- uh, in really embracing the sustainability or are you seeing other countries where it's coming from the people first that are pushing government in that direction?
1: Um, it's a very interesting question. And if you look elsewhere, uh, everywhere, you'd find in one or the other in countries, countries are trying to do something. Some are doing more than others. But, of course, it depends on the circumstances. So for example, for the most uh, industrialised countries like the US, you can see there's a very huge focus now with the Biden administration on repurposing the economy and making it sort of work for the middle class and with the inflation reduction act which is a big kind of program to stimulate innovation and many other climate related um, projects and investment and initiatives uh, you can see there's a kind of approach which also the EU is trying to think about. If you look at small islands uh, for example in the Caribbean like uh, Barbados uh, they are also leading, but from a very different point of view, which is a moral. And the Barbados Prime Minister uh, Mia Motley, she's been at the forefront calling for reforms to the World Bank and IMF uh, to connect the issue of debt sustainability and climate. And she uses a very strong moral argument. And with her initiative, the Bridge Town Agenda for the reform of the global financial architecture, uh, and with the meeting. There uh two weeks ago in Paris, you could see this a kind of framing uh, of the issue. And finally, if you look at, for example, African countries, they're focusing on regional initiatives and trying to uh, consolidate their efforts because they're small countries with a big challenge for capacity. So they're using regional institutions, creating regional institutions and pulling their resources and pulling the sovereignty as well to, uh, to deal with the issue. But most importantly, also you can see citizens such as young people connecting across countries, creating movements, and exchanging ideas, trying to mobilise society. So you can see these different kinds of responses from different governments, but also uh, different uh, parts of society.
0: I, I think that's a really good point. And Hamza, I, w- I wonder if I could pick up that with you. This idea that young people are coming together across the globe in order to pursue uh, climate change uh, improvements or things that will help to um, to uh, ameliorate some of the uh, the problems that are arising out of climate change. I'm I'm wondering whether because I can see that if you have a global movement that people individuals and young people will actually get a sense that they're making a difference, but what about for the individuals or for the for the mother or father that's just trying to do their own little bit around recycling or whatever? How how do we help to communicate whether or not people's initiatives are being successful?
2: We see that people's initiatives being so the community led movements for example um whether it just be something quite as simple and and also very beneficial like having um uh, what we call community gardens or recycling programs or even community coming together for small renewable energy projects shows that there's an effort there's drive and then there's kind of that motivation and that enthusiasm and the the to really tackle the big problem um but i think the one thing that's kind of Perhaps forgotten there is like the the, the effort like how, how far that effort goes for example you can go really well and recycle and divert all your waste streams but let's say if your state or where you are doesn't have the facilities to provide um, to really take that and divert it from landfill and actually repurpose upcycle reuse then it's like that effort really it's it's it remains the benefit the benefit still remains within community but that long-term effect really isn't there um, we were mentioning just before you know some of the examples of developing countries um, or, or even just the idea the is mentioned there and then it's like the challenges posed there around like technology transfer we have really amazing um, technology that's coming out regarding the you know carbon emissions and also waste repurposing but it's also like you need people who are trained up in how to utilize it and know the development of it um ip challenges and then also the cost of getting things there so it's like it's it's all it's all a big picture kind of way of looking at and i think when you when you zoom in when you zoom into community you see that it's kind of on a wavelength of two sides where there is one the well-informed person who's taking action on that and has the financial resources to do it but when you take a look at community that really doesn't receive that knowledge or that information um you're um, your community that prioritizes survival and working day to day over kind of the long-term effect and risks risks of climate you see that they are the ones that actually get the brunt of the cost the higher yeah. energy bills um the new waste streams coming on board um the increased petrol prices because of uh because of petrol taxes or difficulty you know the, the conversion to hi- electric hybrid cars and also the cost of things like that too yeah
0: um so Interesting yeah. way of looking at it. <laughs> it certainly is. Um, I'm intrigued because Australia, in and of itself, as one of the um, the countries that is embracing solar power to a, a, an enormous degree, and yet at the same time, the recycling sort of has taken a bit of a bump recently, in, um, because we haven't necessarily resolved how to deal with the the nuances of effective recycling. Um, I think it's still a challenge to find community-led initiatives or to bring the community together in order to support initiatives. Are, are you seeing any particular communities that really are actively working together? I, I think there's, um, I've certainly seen examples of um, some uh, rural uh, areas where they are, you um, getting wind power and uh, and developing that as a way of ameliorating everybody's uh, electricity costs within a particular local community. Are you seeing others that are similar to that?
2: So, yeah, the amazing examples of that, absolutely. Um, not only in Australia, but also globally. Like the, the amazing thing about it is that the technology is now at a point where we can leapfrog what we use to get us to where we are. So communities that never had that access or that never had kind of the, the giant infrastructure we have, we can now develop micro to power up small areas instead of having these large interconnected uh, transforms that kind of power entire regions. So it's like, and that's super expensive and well developed over a long period of time. But now we can have solutions that really can provide batteries, solar, uh, solar wind turbines and such to, to, to you know power remote areas, remote communities, and just provide that there um i think the key challenge just to that is cost um for providing the funding and then also providing the also technical expertise because you don't just want to bring people from other communities to come in and do a job and leave you know you want to train up capacity building within a community so that they're able to really maintain develop and understand and pass on that knowledge yeah it's 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 been shown in history for how long as we were mentioning before um indigenous communities plan for you know planned burning um they understand their environment very well and it's like if we continue to support capacity building and have active participation you can then have you know you, you'll be able to tackle m- tackle the problem um you'll be able to bring people on board capacity build support new ideas new businesses kind of emerging from you know from like in an equitable way, where it's it can really anyone can really have that idea because they have that knowledge.
0: Yeah, Ken, Kennedy, you've you've got quite well. You've got this global familiarity given all the areas that you've worked in and the field in which you work. Um, uh, there are a lot of examples of this. Uh, these sort of community-led initiatives within different countries in Africa. Um, I'm wondering if they if you might like to just bring our attention to one or two, and whether or not you think that contributes. To social cohesion within those areas?
1: Absolutely. And I think um, sometimes, even when working on global issues, we forget to look at what's happening at the community level because that can uh, have very important lessons uh, that can be scaled. I'll draw an example from one of the really uh, sort of studied but also very innovative examples on how to deal with multiple problems uh, in, in a context where societies don't have many resources one of the resources they have is creativity so we all know the story of mobile money where it's just a very basic mobile phone that has a message uh one can sort of uh, move money around and that's a technology pioneer by uh, in kenya where all you needed is just a basic mobile phone that can send a text message so there are kinds of innovations around that where now people are connecting that for example you could have a um, kind of a uh credit system uh where you can pay for uh solar generated uh, electricity you get a package of a solar panel and um, a couple of units uh sort of batteries to store uh, the energy and then uh, you get to pay that for time of course, um, that has been billed as very transformative, but um, it depends on, uh, <laughs> at the end of the day, whether those communities benefit. But you you can see these kinds of uh, solutions or even using uh, solar water pumps uh, in very dry areas where the water is very scarce, uh, the rains are very unpredictable because of climate change. But you can see those kinds of innovations. Uh, I think that is driven also in part because now, we are living in a world where technology is becoming quite abundant because 30 years ago, the problem was we don't have enough technologies. Now, the problem is the opposite, where we have too many technologies, too much innovation. So how do we absorb that and use it to address our problems? And I think that's where communities come in. And they're very key because they understand their context and they can adapt uh, some of those uh, technologies and some of, those, uh, some of that knowledge uh, into solving uh, their own problems. So I think there's a huge role for, for those kinds of models.
0: Um, Kennedy, do you think that technology, um, I won't solve the problem, but do you think um, technology and this uh, ability of uh, a community-led approach is likely to sort of give some equality into dealing with climate change? Or do you think this inequity between um, countries across uh, the world is going to continue in regard to climate change?
1: Um, it was a quite a difficult question, but uh, I think that, um, if we don't think about the issue of uh, inequality, I think because it's that concern. Of course, you have all this technology, but uh, there's a concern if we're too deterministic and think technology by itself will solve the problem, then we might end up generating more problems. And I think the key or the secret is in how to lead with the communities. you know what do they want to solve what is important for them and how can these technologies uh, and by technology I mean I'm using a very general word I mean tools that they can use to solve their problems and knowledge uh, that is absolutely key and if you think about uh, how you know also the demographics of societies really vary if you look at Africa for example 70 uh, percent of the population is below 30. So their uptake of technology and how they approach problem-solving be quite different, Uh, for example, in societies where there's a more advanced uh, or an older uh, generation Mm -hmm. that's a huge part of the population or or where it's a, a little bit more industrialized. But at the end of the day, the key is um uh, sort of foregrounding the initiatives with the communities. What do they want? What do they need? And do they have the capacity uh to sort of implement those those initiatives? Uh, but if we don't use that kind of holistic approach or looking at things like poverty as well, things like inequality, then if we have a very narrow frame of climate, we might even end up creating more problems yeah. uh, than we are solving. It, so it is a absolutely really int- critical to start from the communities.
0: It is a really interesting point because there is Um, a narrative, if you like, amongst wealthier countries that if we just wait long enough, technology will create the solution and we won't have to have, you know, done a whole lot of um, major change like the uh, changes to coal mining and and various other things. We'll just wait and technology will solve it all. Um, But I think the point you're making is that that isn't necessarily the case unless we've actually got a more holistic approach to dealing with something that is fundamentally changing and, and having an effect on absolutely everybody.
2: It's, you know, a technology that we're all, the technology that we're utilising now, the internet. Um, it's, it the U, a UN report has that 30% of the world's population still has never accessed the internet. Here it is how far along we are, <laughs> and it's like, and, and we're using Zoom, speaking across countries, and it's like, At that point, so it's and we take a look at renewable technologies and such, access to it, and what's all needed there as well. I think that's just the key point that I wanted to add to that.
0: I think that's an incredibly important point, Hamza, and thank you for for bringing us, uh, making that, uh, and uh, bringing us to our attention. That's um, it's really valuable. So maybe picking up on that and looking to the future, what. What do you think we should be building on? What are the strengths we should be building on? And what are the things that uh, that you think we perhaps need to pay more attention to and stop being uh, perhaps a bit lackadaisical about?
2: Things that we need to build, we, we need to be more inclusive. Um, we need to have, it, it should be, everyone should be involved. Um, there needs to be more information sharing, um, knowledge, capacity building and um, The education of it, I think, I think the entire climate movement has a, and this is like, it's going to be bad to say, but a (laughs) terrible public information campaign. We we talk about carbon neutral targets. We talk about... um, technologies and mission, but then how many people really do understand the, the actual issue of climate change um, and, and what it really means? It took me getting a master's degree because prior to that, I had, new cl- I had no clue what it was. <laughs> um, and that's what, actually what expressed my interest in, in going to study for it. Um, so a public information campaign, um, inclusivity across all you know, all walks, all socioeconomics, all communities, all regions, um, providing opportunity as well for employment. Because what can come from it itself is amazing. One aspect of it, just one aspect, I'll highlight quickly, is the circular economy, um, which is taking away at how we 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 how we take, use, and dispose materials to how we can take, use, and reuse materials. So stop throwing, stop things going to a landfill, and it's like just this element itself that links back to that example of that guy i told you with the wood chipper mm-hmm. by 2030 this is projected to be a 4.5 billion trillion dollar industry not billion trillion and it's like individuals have the chance to access it through understanding it and it's like it, it can provide an, uh, an area of access for anyone and i think that's to me i see opportunity behind it but i also see barriers but i see those barriers can be overcome by just capacity building inclusivity adaptation and engagement
0: Fantastic. Um, Kennedy, I wonder about you, what your thinking is about what strengths are there that we should be building on?
1: Yeah, I think there are two strengths uh, which uh, can really help us in the long term to uh, to deal with this problem. I think the first one is really harnessing the innovation that we have uh, at the moment. I think we're living in a very uh golden age, so to speak, of innovation, where, you know, uh, we'll see in our lifetime or various lifetimes, I will see kinds of developments we've never seen before, uh, technological. And the question is whether those, we really harness them to improve uh, humankind or the welfare of societies. And there's a new book by um, Darrell Nachimoglu and James Robinson, I think, from MIT just came out, and it shows, uh, sort of, analyzes 5,000 years of human history on how we've tried to harness technology. And they argue that technology by itself cannot help has not help us, but we need to uh, sort of connect it with society. And the second thing I think we need, which will be absolutely crucial is empathy. And that touches on the issue of inequality that you brought up. And we should understand uh, that, you know, there may be different ways of going about solving very, very complex problems like climate change. And uh, to sort of reconcile that contradiction where we are living in a golden age of great innovations, but also great deprivation where people don't have much is also to sort of psychologically have that kind of empathy and understand sometimes when people resist innovations or new ways of thinking, it's not because they think they're bad, but they have a fear of loss. And um, I think with that, I'll finish with a recommendation of a very good book on that that looks at 500 years of human history called Innovation and Its Enemies Why People Resist New Technologies by like Callistus Tumor of Harvard, uh, which really captures that point. So if we have can harness all these developments we have and have empathy, then I think we'll be in a really good position to tackle this, this strong, uh, complex problem.
0: I, I think, Kennedy, I think you made an incredibly important point. I, I, and absolutely, both of you have really tied this to social cohesion, that importance of inclusivity and um, and empathy, and the connection to society. That technology, in and of itself, can't can't solve the problems. But I'm I'm really grateful to both of you for spending this time with us. It's been uh, really valuable, and and I think both of you are incredible role models for anybody that's thinking about getting more and more involved in this area and wanting to make a difference so thank you both for spending this time with us hi Ag. it's delightful to have you here at our end of podcast chat Thanks. so uh, you have actually been quite crucial to the development of this podcast you've uh, you've talked to many of the guests that we've had before we've got here and helped us to put some structure to it so it's it's really great because you're uh, heading overseas and it's terrific to have you here to talk through what uh, what we thought of this particular session. So it was uh, amazing to have both Kennedy there in, in uh, Oxford University and then Hamza here as well uh, to talk about all these different elements related to climate change, but to bring it all back to the community level. Was there anything in particular that you noticed in what they said?
3: Um, I thought it was really interesting, the points that Hamza had made, uh, particularly about how the fact of everyday families more worried about surviving or, you know, paying the bills, um, so to speak, and where does climate change and sort of the degradation of the climate come into when you're worried about those day-to-day sort of getting through the week, paying the bills, survival sort of things?
0: Yeah, I think it's really tricky for individuals that aren't concentrating so hard on just living their daily lives to worry about whether or not they can make a contribution and if they can make a contribution how do they know if it's actually having an effect?
3: Absolutely, yeah, especially in the short term. It's really hard to sort of be focused about the really long term if you're not even going to be around for that that part, yeah.
0: Do you you find that it's a topic of conversation amongst young people?
3: Um, Well, it seems so on television. Um, (laughs) I don't know if all young people are really worried about the climate issue, though. I think there's other things that sort of maybe promote sort of conversation. I don't know in my sort of, the people I went to high school with talk about climate change on a daily basis. No. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Yeah. no, it's it's tricky, isn't it? Because it does come back to that. What are we thinking about day to day versus if you were asked what is a particular issue, um, you know, in a survey or something, you may well say, oh, well, climate change is a big issue because gee whiz, things are changing.
3: Yeah, and it is an existential threat. But again, um, people are probably more worried about things that are in their face as opposed to something (laughs) that might be coming in their mind.
0: Yeah, yeah. But then I guess when we think globally, we're very aware of the fact that the people living in the Pacific Islands are are really facing this in a very um, serious way. But then uh, others in more wealthier countries, um, it seems to be more things that at government level or, or major business-level multinationals should be dealing with rather than individuals.
3: Absolutely. I mean, when the seawater's rising by the year where you live, you're probably thinking, oh, well, this is probably going to become a more imminent problem. Whereas yeah. we don't see that sort of um, you know, increase in the issue where no. we live. So,
0: No, it's easy to sit back and hope. Hope, yeah. <laughs> the, I felt it was really important, the way you mentioned empathy, yeah, being an important component of... Um, of thinking about climate change, that whole sense of trying to put yourself in other people's shoes.
3: Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, maybe a good initiative is to get people to see how threatful it is for other people Mm -hmm. because it's easy to say, okay, these people are suffering from or, you know, might be suffering from this soon, but if you can't really connect to that, it's just something happening on the other side of the world For most people.
0: Yeah, very true. Well, they were two terrific guests, and uh, and it was great to hear both of their perspectives. You're about to head off to Greece. Yeah, that's right. So, um, so I'm hoping it's very hot over there in Greece at the moment. Yeah,
3: it is hot at the moment. Don't know how worried they are about the climate in comparison. I'll probably have to do some investigation.
0: Well, you're going to be looking at international development, so yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is going to be something that's going to be interesting to see whether it crops up in your education uh, yeah. as you study your master's. So very best wishes. Thank you. Anfield. Have a great time.
2: Thank Thanks for tuning in to the Voices of Australia podcast brought to you by the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. This podcast is produced by me, Faisal Farah and with audio, visual, recording and editing by John Bigelow from Interactive Media Solutions. Research for each episode is provided by Agalos macdu and Matthew Skidmore. Original music is... By Steve Klapsinos. Learn more about the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute and all its works by visiting the website www.scanloninstitute.org.au.